The Tevil Commute, Season 6, Episode 5, Games Part 2, in which we talk about digital games. Are you ready? Let's go. Hi, Sean. How's it going? Yeah, good. Yeah, good. You? Good. Good. I'm, I'm good. excited about today's podcast. Yeah, me too. Me too. Anytime our streams cross, as in games and, and teaching, then it's an exciting moment. It is a very uh, exciting moment. I'll do the <laughs> we, beginning spiel, shall I? Yeah, go on then. All right. Yeah. So if you're just joining us here, this is the Tevil Commute. It's a podcast for language teachers. That's not about language teaching, but the subject always seems to come up. Um, and this is actually the second part of a two-part series we did on games. Uh, we did the first part, which were, what were they, pen and paper and board games and things like that. Right, Sean? Yeah, that was last season. We talked about... Uh, in inverted comma, traditional game. So we've always said we're going to come back to digital, yeah? Exactly. And this episode, we're doing digital games. I'm your host, Lindsay Kleinfield. And I'm the person that annoys him, called Sean. And we've got a third person with us today, and it isn't James. <laughs> so, so our mystery our guest, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, hello, everybody. Um, my name's David Dodgson, and... Um, I'm an ICT coordinator at the British Council in Bahrain and also someone who's uh, an enthusiast about digital games and language learning. Exactly. And we've uh, we've read stuff by uh, David on the topic of games. Um, I think you have a blog as well, don't you? Yeah. ELT Sandbox or something like that? ELT that Sandbox, that's, the, that's yeah. right. Plus some other articles that you've written for Teaching English and we thought you'd make a great addition to the podcast today for us all to talk about digital games. Well, yeah, I think it's the quote from his old blog from a blog post a few years ago that actually kind of said, "Oh, let's get Dave on to talk about it." Uh, it's a, a quote: uh, "Video games are a long, long-established part of many people's recreational habits and have the power to engage and motivate players." Um, so, I guess is that why we we should use them in the classroom as our opening gambit? Are digital digital games the 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 necessity in the in the um, classroom of the modern age? Motivation is like the first thing that people think of when it comes to when it comes to the games and so on. But um, when you get a bit deeper into it, it's not the only thing. It's not the only thing that they bring to the classroom. I find uh, as I've kind of used them more over the years and investigated. Games, I've found that it goes far beyond motivation. Games can provide a real context for language learning, not only incidental learning, like picking up vocabulary from the games, but actually as a kind of vehicle for producing language as well. Okay, you, uh, Lindsay, you're you're you use games as well, yeah? You're, uh... Yeah, no, I've 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 used uh, uh, my share of uh, video well board games and video games in the class. So I've always been it's always been something I've been interested in. I I haven't kind of devoted 
a ton, a ton of um, attention to it pedagogically in terms of writing or anything, which is why I'm really interesting to hear uh, what Dave has to say about this. Um, there was a book that I helped edit, um, one of the first ones, I think, that came out in ELT called Digital Games by uh, Kyle Maher and Graham Stanley. I think... Uh, you edited it. It was called Digital Play. Digital play. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Digital play. <laughs> Apologies to Kyle and Graham, but digital play. Yeah. And, and, and that one was um, made quite a case for, for the use of video games, but all the kind of other things around them as well. Um, digital, digital play will always stay in my mind because, uh, they, because I was sat next to Graham Stanley at the Elton Awards that, that year when he's, when that book won, but he was out of the room when it, when it won. <laughs> I won't mention he beat me, but anyway, uh, it was just so funny that he had to run in to actually get the award. Yeah, okay, so go, go in, taking that book, uh, that book in the opening lists motivation, innovation, engagement, and flow as some of the reasons to use uh, to use digital games. So we've talked a bit, a bit about motivation. So what about those other three things, innovation, engagement, and flow? How would they fit into digital game use? Uh, let's go back to David, since we've, in, we've invited him here. Okay, well, um, flow is an interesting idea. That's something, um, if if you've heard of uh, Jane McGonigal and her Reality is Broken book, she focuses on that a lot. And this idea that you kind of, you build up this momentum and you get into this mode of learning and it just keeps building up and um, you kind of become, you kind of become receptive to learning from getting fully engaged in the game. And I think that's definitely something, particularly in the work I've done with young learners with like primary and um and tweener learners that that's certainly something i've seen with them that flow that comes the motivation that combination of motivation and engagement which then makes them kind of start producing language and getting into these uh these creative ideas without them actually realizing that they are doing that that they are engaged in a speaking or a writing activity so we'll probably, I mean, we'll, we'll talk about games that we use probably in more detail later on in the podcast, but just exemplify what you mean by how a game might get students into the flow of it. Okay, well, one example I can give is with uh, Minecraft. When I was working in a primary school in Turkey a few years ago, and I noticed that, um, well, yeah, my entry point for this is usually the, I remember there was one lesson. We were doing a, an end-of-unit project, and um, it was a unit about storytelling, and obviously the project was related to students creating their own story. And I had a group of students who were sitting there and kind of staring at a blank page. They weren't really coming up with any ideas, so I went over to help them. And, um, and I said, you know, you've just got to find something you're interested in, and then you'll get some ideas, you'll get creative. And it was when I said that word creative that one of the boys in the group said, hmm, teacher, could we set our story in the world of Minecraft. So I thought, okay, well, tell me what you mean. I'd heard about the game a little bit, but I didn't know too much about it. And then they, they explained the game a bit to me. They talked about the adventures they have in the game. And then suddenly they, they were buzzing. They had all sorts of ideas coming. And I think that was an example of the flow beginning. Like even without the game actually in front of them, they just started to generate ideas and the whole shifting of the setting from just come up with your your own story and brainstorm your ideas and paper to come up with a story set in Minecraft that got them going. And then out of the lesson for homework, they set some things up in the game. They took some screenshots to kind of illustrate their story and they came back to class the following week with this uh, 
like 10 slide PowerPoints with with text on each slide and screenshots from the game. And it was like the most well-received story amongst the entire class. And then it all snowballed from there, with kids starting to use Minecraft for their projects. And I think that's an example of where if, we ha if they hadn't had that option, if they'd just gone ahead with a straightforward collaborative story creation task, they were going to struggle. It strikes me, listen to those stories about those kids like getting really animated and getting into flow about Minecraft. We often say, you know, try to make tasks that relate to the, the learners' real lives and, you know, real life English. And it's ironic that I think, and this happens so much with games, um, is that is their real life. Their real life is a lot of relate, like they, they find it much more easy, much easier, a real life task to talk about like a story of what would happen in Minecraft, a kind of open sandbox game where you could make make your own stories rather than um, tell a story about a trip to the shop in your neighborhood. You know, I yeah. think it's it's a, it's really interesting how how the game how if gaming is something that you do a lot or, or even if you do it ca casually is still part of your real world. It isn't necessarily fantasy in terms of language production in uh, in ta in tasks. If you look at other examples like um, some training I've been doing recently about young learners and we. We talked about how if a learner is shy and reluctant to speak, if you give them the opportunity to do some kind of activity like creating a puppet, they, they suddenly become a lot more animated and they kind of project themselves through this puppet rather than talking about themselves if they're perhaps a bit self-conscious. And I think the same thing happens with games as well. It's something, it, it's something personal. They create their own narrative within the game, but also it's a shared experience that if if they have classmates who are also playing the same game, it becomes a shared experience and then they become more willing to talk about it. But I guess I mean, that's interesting, that shared experience, because one of the things I was thinking about the, the Minecraft example you gave, which is a great example, but if did it, does it actually matter if you play Minecraft or not? Do you feel left out a little bit if you don't understand the mechanics of Minecraft, for example? Yeah, well, one interesting thing with that class was that um, yeah, a lot of the kids were playing Minecraft. Some of them weren't, but they'd all heard about the game. And just the interest was all built up. Even the ones who didn't actually play the game, they knew about it. And it got their interest more than, uh, as Lindsay was saying, a, a, a real-life story about somebody's trip to the market or something like that. Yeah. And, the, I mean, there's another... Uh... Another thing that comes up, you know, with Sean asking about this, what happens about those who haven't played Minecraft, whether they could get into it. Uh, by the way, fun fact, uh, Minecraft most watched game on YouTube in its 10-year history and most second most highly searched for term on YouTube in the first 10 years of its history. I read that somewhere. Um, sorry, coming back to this thing, though, one of the things that happens that I've had this discussion with editors when I've been doing material and I wanted to put in Minecraft or, or, or put in a game, um, sometimes I get the comment from an editor who's more or less my age who says, ah, yeah, but that's only for the boys. Um, you know, girls don't play video games. Uh, your guys, what do you think of this? Uh, I, I can see the editors say it, having written a book on mobile learning. I know this is what the editors say about boys and boys and girls in the classroom uh, uh, with it, but um, I don't think it's true. I think uh, with, I mean, I don't teach as many um, kids these days, but certainly uh, most of the people that I teach are perhaps female, and there's always a, a leading with games and games I've played with them are, have have been far, uh, you know, they've been engaged by. They're probably not as bad as game, you know, not as dedicated 
dominated gamers as we are, but um, I certainly think it's the there's you know if we look at the other things in terms of engagement, I think there's an engagement factor there because it, for them, if if they don't play games, there's a novelty factor in looking at it as well, and and not playing games is also an into uh, into into things in the classroom. So I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I found the the example I gave you. There was a girl involved in that group uh, who came up with the the original idea to to set a story in Minecraft. I mean, yeah, traditionally that's always been the view that boys play more than girls. I know when I was growing up, I had my own Commodore sixty four and then various other machines, Amiga and PlayStation. After that, whereas my my sisters didn't, although they did then get into games later on but maybe that wasn't so much that they went into games it was just the decision was made for them that the boy in the house is going to get a computer and the girls are going to get something else but i think it's we definitely see over the last like 10 15 years there's definitely an attitude that's changing and i think um games are becoming more maybe not more targeted towards girls but they're certainly becoming more universal in their appeal i think part 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 of that is the fact that they're no longer kind of they're no longer really console things, are they? I mean, they you, like you said, you go down the route of console boys tended to buy the consoles when we were young or have the consoles bought and computers and stuff. But but now that we're you know with mobile devices, and certainly some of the games that are coming out, um, you know, on the iPad, for example, are as good a quality perhaps as they would be in in a, in a, in the computer version or the or the the game version and therefore you know there's more there's more accessibility for them in that sense i mean it's also interesting that people will say oh gosh i don't play any video games but they don't consider the games that they're playing on their mobile as yeah. as, as a video game so they may sink like you know 200 hours into candy crush yes exactly yeah, or, or going going back to going back to an era for smartphones. Uh, was it Caterpillar? The oh, the uh, snakes. Sorry, snake. The game snakes. Nobody saw that as a game, but they all you say who played snakes, and everybody used to do. So, well, it was this, the same also ten years ago when the Facebook games started to become very popular, Farmville and and those kind of things. People didn't see those as playing games. One one incident I remember uh, again back when I was working in Turkey just before we went on holiday. The class teacher was handing out the reports to the students and she gave them a long lecture on don't waste your holiday time playing computer games, get outside, be active. And then um, during the holiday, she sent me five or six requests a day. <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. Right. Let's go to the angels. Students are students because they like to fool people. Okay, so um, so we've talked about um, why we might use digital games, but um, let's assume that a teacher has never kind of considered using a digital game in the classroom. So, uh, Lindsay, Dave, um, how or what what tips would you give them to get getting started? Because I think in the first in in part one we mentioned the idea of incidental. Uh, learning through games and, and also people talk about enforced learning we will play this game you will learn from it uh, which are perhaps not the best ways of going about it so how how do we get started with games in the classroom what what kind of advice would we give teachers 
Well, I think first the first thing I would start with and um, would be well is deciding like there are two routes to go. One is like everybody playing this or, or interacting, let's say, with the same game together in the same space. So this would be projecting something from your computer onto the onto the board and 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 uh, doing it like that. I think there's a, the other uh, and the other route is that everyone has the game themselves on a device and they are either doing it uh, outside of class and reporting back on it a bit like the Minecraft thing that um, Dave was talking about or or they are doing it all in class together. So I, I guess I would be like deciding like which which route to go would be the fir the first thing. But it's almost going to come straight away to the games we've used. But Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I, I would have thought so. Do you have anything to add on it, uh, Dave? Yeah, I'd say, um, I mean, if you are going to go down that route of using games outside the classroom and having students report back, I think it'd be important to find out what kind of games your students are interested in. And if they are interested in games at all, it's very rare, but you might come across a class where nobody's really a gamer there. But um, yeah, just like with Minecraft, for example, I didn't know anything about the game when um, students first started to mention it. And, and then there was an interesting period where they started to create these projects outside class with Minecraft. And then we started to explore ways we could perhaps use it in class on the school computers. And then we kind of got into this role reversal where the students were teaching me, along with the other students who were unfamiliar with the game, how to play the game, and we were, we were using this uh, as a way to kind of bring English in that they were compiling instructions, and me and the students who were unfamiliar with the game were generating questions, things we wanted I've to I've got a big about. smile on my face, Gary. Do you think of it? Oh, I have done um, dabbled with Minecraft, but the, the, the best things I've ever learned about Minecraft is when kids have told me about it. And it's one of those things I think, I don't know, adults mm -hmm. tend to struggle to get their head around it, but sit down with your students and let them <laughs> explain it to you. And you're like, it all makes sense. And they take so much delight in actually telling you uh, how the thing works with it. Um, I'm going to say, I'm just going to add a couple of things. I think we also, if we're going to play games outside of the class or we're going to get students, if we're going to make these decisions, as obviously we've got to think about uh, device compatibility, cost, safety, those things as well. Uh, I think we'd be re remiss not to bring those things up if, if we're going to get into gaming. Uh, you know, we, sending your kids to play um, a hardcore eighteen Call of Duty or something might not might not get the best feedback from parents. The Last of Us Two <laughs> report back what happened. Yeah, no, that would be. Um... Yeah, that would be that would be of some concern. I think also then in that case, uh, we're talking about working with uh, children here uh, with adults. That's slightly different because some of the games that I've I've used, I've used with like uh upper teens or adults young adults and middle-aged adults so uh in which case that isn't so much of an issue uh, you say some of the games you've used then go on and give us a game you've used okay let me start with one of my uh favorite ones why we can go around the table and just kind of like swap ideas here so one of the ones that um when i discovered this i thought oh my gosh this is the ultimate information gap game. Uh, it's called Keep Talking and Nobody Explodes. Do you both know that? <laughs> yeah. 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 Okay, so I, for those of you who don't know that, Keep Talking and Nobody Explodes, uh, one person um, has the is in front of the computer. They see on a table uh, a, a bomb in a suitcase. The bomb has all these little different modules, so there's wires and a button and things like that. It's randomly generated each time the, the game starts, so it's always going to be a different bomb. The other person or people People have a book that you print out, a PDF. Uh, you can print out or refer to it on another computer. I've printed it out. 
with instructions on what to do. And they can't see the bomb, but the bomb person can't see the book. So you've set up your information gap, and the person who sees the bomb has to describe what they see. The other people look up in their booklet to give instructions. So, for example, I would say, I can see wires. And then the person with the book will turn to the page that says wires, and then they'll say, how many wires do you see? Do you see four wires? And I'll say, no, 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 I see three wires. And then the person will kind of find the three-wire part and say, is there a red wire? And if I say yes, then they'll say, okay, cut the red wire. And so there's a, there's a whole series of things like that. You really have to kind of see the, the YouTube clip to, uh, to understand how it works. But I've done that even with like low B1 students with a group of around eight where the people would take turns on the computer. So we had one computer and everyone else sort of like chipping in. Um, and that was just that was just brilliant. It, I, I, after a while, it gets really tense. So um, I, I think I, I, I used it. I was using it in the summer in a, in a training course I was doing with, with some teachers. And the, you could see them going, what is this? What? And you just look at this, really? All this reading? And then like two minutes into the first bomb. And it's like, cut the red one, cut the red one. And, you know, <laughs> it's amazing. Even language learners were able to deal with that instructions booklet. Because it's still, it's very simple, like one clause sentences. It is. It's just kind of it's finding the place to you know uh finding the bit about the wires or finding the bit about the symbols or, or whatever but it is hilarious to produce language in the classroom uh uh with it uh, so that's the first uh, one i'll throw out what did you, uh, so that one you only need one edition of the game um plus uh project no you don't even need the projector that could be done with a laptop one game and and the printed out booklet um but you'd have to purchase the one copy of the game and it only it doesn't work with a large class I'll, I'll let i'll pass it on to you guys if you want to share one dave do you want to add one yeah um one i'll add this is something we we're talking before about games that are more suitable to older teens and adults um i've used a game called her story with, with those age ranges with those i love age ranges. her story that is so good yeah yeah so this is interesting it's kind of a throwback if you remember in the early days of the cd-rom and fmv games so You've got a series of video clips. Um, you you play the role of somebody who's got access to these police archives with all these archive video clips from, I, th I think the games is set in the early or mid 90s, something like that. And and uh, you you watch, you have a few clips available to you and you watch them and then you pick up on something. It's a, the same woman featured in all the clips. She's the only person who speaks. It's real life uh, actress that's been used. And then you pick up on things she said uh, she comes in to report that her husband's missing, and then you pick up on things that she said and type those keywords into the search engine, and it brings up more clips. And you kind of this way, you slowly uncover the story. And what I what I found this was uh, really good for with language learners was this kind of intensive listening process. So they were critically listening to what she was saying and trying to pick up on those little clues that were there and use those to to uncover more of the story. And the great thing was I used this in a small class. I just had um, four students. So I had two copies of the game. So they each worked through it in two pairs. And then it was just very interesting to see the different routes they took to uncovering this story. And then when they were stuck, they would get together and kind of uh, exchange some ideas and then go back to, go back to their individual computers and, and pick it up again. And it was just a very interesting, it was the, very interesting approach to storytelling, I found. It was a truly interactive story. It wasn't just like you made some binary choice and the story split off in two different directions. It was just you as... It's kind of like if you if you watch a TV show and something really gets your interest and then you tune in the next week, oh, but they've gone on and off on a different tangent and, and you're kind of waiting for them to get back to that story that you're invested in. But here you have that choice to 
follow that tangent that interests you most and um, see it through to the end. So it's a really interesting game, I think, to use in a language classroom. I, se I second that one highly. Her story, definitely. I think I'm going to pick up, I think I've, of, of late, what has interested me most is is kind of that interactive part that, 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 um, that Dave just mentioned in terms of interactive listening. And I find that in terms of skills, if I take reading and listening, they're the games that I'm kind of playing in class most. I, I've got an um, I've got an Alexa as well and sometimes take, you know, the voice interactive thing. And I sometimes take Alexa into class because you can tell Alexa to open the magic door I just realized she might, might start because she's in the corner. And open the magic door is, is kind of taking you into a fantasy game. And it'll say, okay, you're still outside a gate. Uh, you can see a castle in front of you. Uh, sorry, I missed I missed what you said. Yeah, in the old in the old iPhone was combined. I always see them as the old like Livingston and Jackson books, like sorcery and that. So you know, you make a decision: do you want to go left? Do you want to go right? And there's a there's actually an app game. Uh, if you haven't got an Alexa, I think it's called Earplay. Uh, uh, and the, these are stories in which you they listen and then say where you want to go next with it. So I, for me, those interactive listenings are there. And I think we've all come across things like Lifelines, the game app where you actually read and make a decision. So these are kind of, for me, the, the, Lindsay, you had this dichotomy at the beginning between games they play outside of class and games you play in class. Uh, on a projector and for me lifelines is the kind of game which i put on a projector and we make decisions they, they read and then they discuss so lifelines uh is about um uh, somebody who's crash landed on a planet calling out for help and uh you get a little bit of bits of text like a text message uh and um you need to need to make a response uh so the students see it and then make a response so i like those kind of games because i i think it's really interesting um I'm just interested in how um, these this kind of not new genre, but this different genre of interactive reading and listening is is taking place. And a lot of that's through games. And if we go back to what we said before about engagement and flow, and I think you know a lot of the people I a lot of teachers I train say, "Well, my students don't like listening and reading." And I think these are these are ways into that um, in a different way because it engages into that uh, with it. Um, um, can I give another little plug for one that's yeah. like that? A bit like the, a bit like uh, made me think of it. The her story because a lot of these have the inter the interaction of of lifelines is is binary yeah, choices. Absolutely. So you can choose like yeah, go absolutely. up, uh, do this or do that, which which uh, and uh, which is still interesting. So it's like the choose your own adventure story. Then you have her story where you have a searchable database and your interaction is via typing keywords in to to find more clips that contain that keyword. So that's how the students would be like talking together saying oh type in the word husband or type in the word jackie or type in the word to find other clips um another one that i i did recently a less known game but um i did a review of recently and i did it with some students was called 911 operator where you as the game player are are the 911 operator and you're fielding 911 calls and having to assign uh like ambulance fire whatever uh, I think I have a little clip of it here, just uh, to give you a little listen. 911, what's your emergency? I, I, I hope I got to work. We need oh. help. Some cables are hanging down on the field oh. Do you know how long it will be? But I want to help. 911, what's your emergency? Help. I shot my leg off. Do you have something to tie around your leg? No, just, just some tools. Oh, God. All right, take off your shirt then. What? Take off your shirt and firmly tie it around your leg. 
So that's 911 operator. And um, that that one there, you also get to choose. You don't type in the stuff, but you, you get you get a choice of things. But it's, again, that kind of intensive listening with a... Um, like the, it's not so much a story being told because it's more of a strategy game. But I've done that in a twenty-minute session, just as sort of the intensive listening um, and and responding to different situations, which was a lot of fun. Fair enough. Uh, any more games you want to talk about? Uh, one that I have also used with high school students is Undertale. Ooh, now um, my son was into Undertale. I could never get past the graphics. <laughs> I don't know the game at all, so please tell me about it. Okay, so is it? Yeah, graphics-wise, I mean, if you think about Minecraft, uh, people always mention the pixelated graphics. I mean, this takes it back even further. This is, this is like going back to uh, 1980s BBC Acorn Electron-style graphics, where you, you've maybe got you've got a few colors on the screen. You've got these kind of very chunky pixelated characters, but it, it's a story set in this strange underworld, and you're trying to help this human child uh, find his way back to the surface, and um, just very interesting how the game plays. This is really a game that adapts to how the player approaches the game. Um, despite its simplistic looks, there, there are different ways you can approach the game. You can go through and these monsters attack you and you zoom into these RPG-style battles. But then you soon realize that you don't actually have to fight to, to get through. There are options you can, you can choose to empathize with the creature in front of you, for example, and you might hit on a sensitive spot and then he breaks down into tears and you get past him that way. Or you also have the option to just go in and um, I think they, I think gamers call it genocide mode, to go and try and wipe out all the monsters that come across your path. But if you try to go for those options where you engage in interaction with the characters, then it brings up this kind of intensive reading experience. So they have to they have to read a lot of text that comes up on the screen, and again, I found that my my learners in this case they ignored the fact that they were intensively reading, and there's a lot of humor in the game, and I found it was a good way to get them to kind of analyze uh, analyze double meanings uh, of words and find jokes in things rather than the traditional uh, course book jokes, which often fall quite flat. So that was an interesting. <laughs> Shall we take another another quick break? I think we can. Let's do it. If you're listening to this podcast, then there's a good chance that you're a fan of Lindsay and Sean and perhaps even me, producer James. And there's also a good chance that you enjoy games. So, did you know that there's a new podcast from the team behind the Tefl Commute called Are You Game? In each episode, each one of us brings a game that they're playing to the table, whether that's a mobile game, video game, a board game or any kind of game that we're playing, we bring them together and we discuss them. So, if that sounds like something that would be interesting for you, why not do a search in your podcast app for Are You Game? Or look for our Facebook page, Are You Game? Or our Twitter account, Are You Game Pod? Okay, we hope to see you there. We hope you enjoy the show. And the good news is that that is definitely a podcast which is not about English language teaching. Okay, so when I was thinking about this uh, thing of digital games and stuff, um, there have been several like stages I think of 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 like the interest in games, um, and the whole idea of like a, a simulation, right? The game is a simulation, and so I mean, Sean, you and I have wanted to do an episode of whatever happened to Second Life um, for a while. But, um, but th there was a time when the heyday, when Second Life was becoming really big, that everyone was like, you could just learn language because you're in a simulation and so on. Um, 
And so now we've got a situation where virtual reality is beginning to take off um, and become a little bit more accessible and people are beginning to dabble with that. Do you think virtual reality would ever uh, become a thing for language learning to make that dream that everyone had when we were talking about Second Life? You know, the idea of like you could literally go to in Second Life, it was like you could go to this little English town and you could like do a bunch of stuff there and it would be just like you were there. So I wonder, is that going to kind of come back again with VR where you could say you could literally feel like you are in an English speaking place? Well, well, there's a lot I could say on this since I'm organizing an event on exactly that question next year. So uh, David, do you you have anything to say before? uh... Yeah, um, I'm I'm not 100% sure. I mean, it may go the way of Second Life that there's this idea there, but then Will it actually be realized and turned into something? I'm not sure. I did actually take the plunge uh, recently during some Black Friday sales, and I picked up a PlayStation VR headset. Um, Yeah, so we brought it home to much excitement. But the first thing that struck me is um, my son wanted to try it out first, put the headset on, and then my wife and I kind of looked at each other and we're like well what are we going to do now (laughs) um so there is that element that i think it it does kind of it immerses the individual into the game but it takes them out of whatever context they're in so it may be useful in just imagine i can imagine those terrifying photos they'd have of a classroom full of children all with those headsets (laughs) on you know Well, you, you, I mean, you, you do get those now in, in a lot of um, state location where, it, where it's been pushed uh, a lot. I think mean, one of my issues is, is the idea of, I think we, uh, I hope that we've kind of sold the reason we use games, uh, digital games in the classroom. But at the moment, for me, VR is, seems to be stuck in that, in that it's, it, there's the pedagogical purpose of it isn't quite there. And I think with language learning, I think that's a real issue. Where's the language being produced and why are we using the language? Um, and as you say, I mean, in the classroom, the, to have the equipment in the classroom, even if you're going to use Google Cardboard is, is for me, it, I think it's, it's difficult to see how it is in language, how it's going to be used in language learning. But then again, the technology is still evolving. I do, I, I have been using VR myself, but not, not um, through, through uh, Google's Daydream, through, uh, about a year now and uh, there are things i do find are interesting uh in it uh in sense that i can see how they might cross over quite well into language learning for example second life reminding me of this there are virtual reality hangouts so you can you know go and chat to people in different countries and that so, that, so there's an actual language practice there and it's not quite gaming as such, but I on an EAP course that I teach, where I have to teach presentation skills, we do use virtual reality to practice the presentations uh, because you can go and see the audience and it, and things like that in it. It's quite interesting from that point of view. So I think there are bits of it there in, in language learning, but I don't know about gaming and, and I don't know, I don't think yet. I think it's a long while to go, but yeah. Um, there you go. I, as I say, it's something I, I, it's something I talk quite a lot on. Well, well, if you if you happen to be in Brighton next April, then I am running an event on exactly that question: whether there's any purpose on VR in in language teaching. So we we'll see. But I think you're right. I think again, like in so many of these other things, it's sort of like you can see, like you could kind of envisage a dream getting closer and closer. But the amount that would one would have to invest in it would that ever happen? Yeah, I mean, I mean, the PlayStation site in itself is one of the I mean, one of the two. I mean, you can buy cardboard, you know, the thing where you just put your phone and go into virtual reality. No, but I mean, to to make the the really good game yeah, that's aimed but at language just be thousands, learning, you know, yeah. like to make and, that. And, and the equipment is and equi- although next year, I mean, Oculus 
Rift, the Facebook VR is going to bring out a self-standing set, which might change stuff. But I mean, yeah, just the money involved. You imagine you've got a class of 16 students in current. If you want to use a, just take the the PlayStation VR. So you're looking at a couple hundred quid for the VR set. Plus you need to have a PlayStation. That's quite an expensive way to get into gaming, isn't it? And you've got 16 in the class. If you've got a class of 16 or maybe you've got a class of 30, uh, you know, phew. Uh, it's kind of no. I, I I wasn't thinking so much of the cost of the sets. I was thinking of the cost of developing a game for but, VR. Yeah, but then it, but but my point is, in order to play that game, you've got to have the set, and then it's a bit like well, unless you unless unless we returned to the bygone era of the language lab, but instead of everyone listening to cassette players, you would have but then, the schools would invest then, in a language lab with with like with twenty five VR headsets. Yeah, I know. But then the problem and the problem is at the moment it's it's still also in that Betamax versus VHS stage. One game works on one one game. There's no uniformity in it so there's so much cost and yeah sorry it's an area where i've spent quite a lot of time i'll shut up <laughs> and i think a, a lot's going to depend on on what is done with it uh, as you mentioned there there are some interesting apps rather yeah. than games and you, you can have those vr experiences where you maybe place your learners in into the middle of a savannah environment and they explore it and so on but then a lot will depend on what is the content what is the learning theory that's applied within that package to, to show the learners around if it's just the case of they're on a literal virtual tour i don't see that it would add much but if it was something more interactive that's going to be something much more interesting and worth though interestingly of course the one the game that um that um lindsay talked about the um what's it called keep talking everything explodes is available in virtual reality now it's ten it's tense enough without having the glasses on so i don't know what, what it would be like as a vr game and i don't know and i and i think to me that would going back to what they said it would lose something um because part of the game is part of the fun of that game is watching everybody scramble around to try and help you which you which you don't get with a headset on so uh, I don't know. Maybe there's another episode we should look at a virtual reality next season and we can do it in more detail and, and, and look at it that way. Maybe. Sounds like we've come to an end of another episode then, Sean. I think so. I think we are. Thanks uh, thanks to Dave for uh, for joining us and giving oh, us some insights. Yes, thank you very uh, much, Dave. Very much we... appreciated. Well, thank you very much for inviting and me And we'll along. make sure that all your blogs, etc., go onto the uh, onto our website, onto the show notes. But you'll find uh, David's blog, quite a lot, written articles on the, the British Council's Teaching English website. And as we said, his own blog is ELT Sandbox. And I think it's got a Facebook page as well, if you're on Facebook, where you can go and see what he's got some thoughts, really interesting thoughts and games and, and further section of games on, on all those uh, pieces of media. So thanks again. Uh, right, I'm going to go put my headset on and play a game. I think I might do Me the too. same without a headset. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. <laughs> Bye, guys. Bye. As your commute is coming to an end, here's an activity you can take into class. We have been talking about gaming and how it can engage students. Why not use this engagement to get students to practice the language of reviews? Start by asking the students to discuss the games that they play and why they like playing with them. If you want to give them an example, look on our website for a link to Lindsay's review of Keep Talking and Nobody Explodes, which he mentioned in the episode. You can use this to highlight how a review is structured and key language. Next, students think about the game they talked about and use that to make a review. Following Lindsay's example, you could encourage them to write a blog post or use the camera on their mobile device to record 
a video review. You can find the instructions for this and our other end of pod activities at our website, tefelcommute.com. You've been listening to The Tefl Commute, an original podcast produced and presented by Lindsay Clanfield, Sean Wilden and James Taylor. Don't miss out on any episodes by subscribing to us on iTunes and by visiting us at tevilcommute.com. Thank you.